let's do this big excessive movie and that's super risky in the jungle. How can I reach out to like the edges of what's possible with yeah. Fitzcarraldo, you know, this movie, Apocalypse Now, it's all like yeah. just filmmakers, like thrill seeking. How can I live on the edge, teeter upon uh, on the edge of a hit movie and a complete disaster? Sounds very cocaine You're... to me. <laughs> uh... <laughs> Motherfucking goddamn orange peel beef. <laughs> It's one fucking hour time. Uh, the show, of course, where we talk about one goddamn movie for one fucking hour. I am Evan Husney, and we got to my left, Tom Fitzgerald. What's going on, man? How That's are right. you? Hey, what's going on? <laughs> Good to have you. Good to have you back. Yeah. Another week. Good to be anywhere. It is. Another film, another year, <laughs> another episode. Here we go. And of course, we have to my right, as always, Mr. Marcus Herring. Marcus, what's going on? up guys i guess it's going to be a bit of a bittersweet episode this week as we bid farewell to mr freaking and on uh talk about this movie right that's right we're on 77 seven wow 77 we are on episode 77 of course chronicling a movie from 1977 normally that y'all would have voted on uh via our instagram polls but for this week we decided as Marcus alluded to, in light of William Friedkin's recent passing, we decided, hey, you know what, fuck it. Let's do Sorcerer um, as a way to sort of pay tribute uh, to uh, Friedkin. You know, look, I mean, I've met him a few times. He's always been super good to me. He was a funny presence to have around. But he's also inspired uh, a lot of content here on the show. We've referenced him many times uh, in the archives. We have one fucking hour on French Connection you could check out. Uh, great episode, and actually one of my favorite episodes of the entire show we've ever done Shit. is One Fucking Hour on Cruising. Uh, I really, really <laughs> loved that look into that movie. It's complicated history, um, some of the crazy set pieces in that, um, and the reevaluation of that movie. So I think, um, yeah, I think it's uh, worth us kind of saying, you know what, make an executive decision. Ni- episode 77 is Sorcerer Time. So, And it might have won right. the poll anyway, guys. We are, we, as That's we said true. Because it was up against, uh, I think, The Cat from Outer Space was one of the other <laughs> ones. Uh, Exorcist you know. 2. It was up against Exorcist 2. So. And uh, The Island of Dr. Moreau. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, we'd already <laughs> done <laughs> the, only mov- the only real movie of 1977. We'd already did anyway, too, right? So Star Wars. So That's uh, right. Star Wars in the archive. So, was that's true. Well, actually, that's a very relevant film to tonight's episode, which we will get into. We'll get into. I have some thoughts on that. Oh, definitely. I'm sure you do. But before we dive into tonight's episode on Sorcerer, just want to give a quick shout out, of course, to the One Fucking Hour Patreon. Patreon.com slash One Fucking Hour is where you can sign up to become. Uh, part of the One Fucking Hour Special People's Club for just uh, $5 a month. Um, that gives you the unfettered access to a lot of this bonus content we've been doing, mainly our DVD-style audio commentary tracks, which are very exciting. We have Blue Velvet up there. We got Texas Chainsaw Massacre, um, Psycho 98, Star Wars, in fact. <laughs> we've done an audio commentary track to Star <laughs> Wars. Right. Uh, but most recently, we just dropped... 
fresh. It's up there right now. If you go to the patreon.com slash one fucking hour, you can download our most recent commentary, which was on Tom. What was it on? I'm sorry. What women want. That's right. We made, we made Tom watch what women want. And Tom, how did it go for you? What'd you think? I don't know. It's hard. I'm still picking up the pieces. You know, I, uh, (laughs) I didn't know what to expect. Uh, it was it was worse than I expected, which was you know, not much. Um, but I had a ball. Yeah, it's it, was, it was like a fun conversation. It's like well over two hours, so it's two fucking hours on oh, what women want. God. And yeah, um, and you and Tom got a, a nice uh, exposure, firsthand exposure to the comedic attempt, like the comedic slapstick attempts of Mel Gibson, right. which were whoa mega cringe, right? Yeah, he's not a comic. No, no. And this is a he's comedy trying film, to be funny. And these are comic situations, and he's just like a big chunky stumbler. There's no comic timing or grace. It's really excruciating. He's just a disgusting oaf. It's like horrible. yeah, he's so oafish and, and blunt and crude. And he has no like 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 the the physical wit of comedy. It's just brutal. <laughs> chunky like right stumbler. Here, this is hell. I quit. It's, it's hell. It's hell. It's such hell. I mean, for all kinds of reasons. I, yeah. Uh, I did find out that the chaplain of our era is, uh, is Mel Gibson. Who would have thunk, man? Um, uh, yeah, it was, I, I, I literally looked away like a lot when he was doing his uh, physical comedy set pieces. I was like, I can't, this is elective. I don't have to look at this. Like, yeah. yeah and, it's, uh, no, I hate it, him with a passion. He's awful. Uh, if you hate Mel Gibson, <laughs> I got your next two hours set up for you. Just watch our, our commentary. <laughs> totally, watch. totally true. Totally, totally true. Um, and Marcus, you you tagged out on that one. I think you dodged a bullet. So I think you're. I think that was a a wise choice. As conscientious objector. Instead, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Whatever you did instead for those two hours is better. <laughs> but uh, we had Waiting we had coupons. I was I was yeah. clipping coupons. There you go. <laughs> there you go. But uh, we were joined by our special guest, uh, Remy Bennett, who took the plunge with us into what women want. So definitely get in there, uh, sign up for the Patreon, or if you want, scroll down to the bottom. If you're watching this on YouTube, right underneath our video is a button, the join button. You can also subscribe. Uh, you can become a member of our YouTube channel for also five dollars a month. Get the same perks. You, you pick Patreon or YouTube. Sign up there. That's the best way to support the show. If you love what we're doing, um, we sincerely appreciate your contribution. And um, yeah, yeah, we're going to keep hooking you up with this bonus exclusive content. So, all right. That is that. Are you guys ready to get into episode 77? Shall we do it? Yeah. Yeah. All right. We're going to start that clock. Here it comes. The hour clock starts now. All right. A little bit of backstory or a little bit of synopsis action here on Sorcerer. All right. Based on the 1953 French film, The Wages of Fear, Sorcerer is set in the small South American town of Porvenir, Colombia, where four men on the run from the law are offered $10,000 and legal citizenship if they will transport a shipment of dangerously unstable nitroglycerin to an oil well 200 miles away. Led by Jackie Scanlon, played by Roy Scheider, the men set off on a hazardous journey during which they must contend with dangerously rocky roads, unstable bridges, and attacks from local guerrillas. 
The four fight for their lives as they struggle to complete their dangerous quest. All right, that is Sorcerer. And um, as we're going to get into this, um, you know, we kind of mentioned, we teased at the, last, uh, at the end of last week's episode that this was going to be a Baby Got Backstory episode. Isn't that right, Tom? <laughs> yeah. Once in a while, there's one, uh, one movie uh, that we pick that where it's just like, as much as anything... Uh, how the film hit the screen is is, is is like its own movie. You know what I mean? Like, uh, and this is one of them. This is a wild, crazy story, the journey to get this on screen. You know, like, uh, kind of like um, on par with, uh, you know, like Lucifer Rising, for example, something mm-hmm. recently. Yeah, right. Yeah, that's in the archive. Shout out to that episode, of course. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think the reason, just real quick before we get into that backstory, the reason we're also doing this, uh, as we mentioned, is, you know, in, in sort of honor of, or in light of Friedkin's passing, um, but also just a little quick personal anecdote out of the gate. Um, as I mentioned earlier, I had a chance to work with him on two separate occasions on very small projects, um, but a little personal anecdote. It was uh, pretty amazing. I was working on the release of a documentary called The Wolf Pack, Tom. You remember that film? Oh, do I? I, saw, I <laughs> yeah. think I saw the world premiere. That's right, at Sundance. Pack in attendance. That's right. <laughs> Uh, if you haven't seen it, it's a great documentary about a group of uh, six brothers, uh, six or seven brothers, it's a lot, of, um, who, who lived in isolation in New York City. Basically, the first 15 years of their lives, they spent confined to their very small, like, two-bedroom apartment uh, in the Lower East Side, uh, yeah, Manhattan. Sitting in front of a television. Right. Uh, yeah. yeah. It's a wild movie. Yeah, and, and yeah, exactly. And so instead of going outside, they watched movies. And then they also reenacted their favorite scenes from their favorite movies, kind of making their own DIY props and yeah. costumes and things. And it's amazing. And so they're, they're, you know, but eventually they were able to break free and, you know, live more normal lives. And, and that's what a big, big, big part of the doc. But mm-hmm. they, growing up as movie fans, they, they always dreamed about going to Los Angeles. And one thing we did in support of the release of the film is we brought them to Los Angeles and they met a, like an array of different filmmakers who just wanted to meet them. They had seen the documentary like David O. Russell really wanted to meet them. And so that we filmed a little sequence with him. And then I actually called Freakin to see if he wanted to do it because I had seen a Q&A of this film of Sorcerer just a few months prior uh, here at BAM in Brooklyn. And he was amazing. He was like a stand-up comedian getting up there <laughs> telling these stories, you know, with that delivery that he has, talking about all these scenes and swearing and shit this and fuck that. And it was amazing. <laughs> I just, I, I loved it. I, I really, really loved it. So I thought he'd be great on camera with these kids. And so he jumped yeah. at the chance to do it. He, we, we, we sent him the film. He said, yeah, let's do it. And then, of course, we met up at your guys' theater and we filmed this little piece. And... Um, it was amazing that uh, he looks at these kids, you know, who've led this com- incredibly traumatic life, and he was like, uh, So I saw your film last night, and I thought it was terrific. To those of us who didn't go through what you guys went through, it's very disturbing. <laughs> I found it. I don't know how the hell you guys walked away from that. Or have you? The first thing I thought was, you are highly intelligent, you know? You're not a bunch of dumbasses, you know? <laughs> and you're not just a bunch of dumbasses. You know, that was like the first thing that he said to them. Like, okay. <laughs> and like it was like, yeah, it does. And then it was like, so how old were you when you saw The Exorcist? He says to one of the kids, and the kids is like, uh, for me, about like six, I think. Ten? Six? Like, I was, I was about these guys old. must be more Not fucked eight. up than I think they are. <laughs> uh, yeah. You know, that's what he said. <laughs> but so he was, he was just roasting these kids, and it was kind of amazing. 
but yeah. uh, and I'll cut to the chase and I'll shut up. But basically, it led yeah. to this great moment where they're sitting on the couches that you guys had at the theaters, and um, one of the kids turns to Friedkin and asks him a very poignant question. He's like, "What do you think the greatest invention is by a human being?" That's the question he asked him, not a film question. He asked him what he thinks the greatest invention is. And <laughs> Billy went on this kind of very touching soliloquy about uh, humanity's greatest invention is faith and love. And he went on this very poetic rant, which was kind of beautiful and actually very touching in a lot of ways. And so okay. you can see that in the doc. If you want to see it, I'll link it in the description of the video okay. that we made. But uh, shout out to Friedkin, man. That was super cool that he just yeah. spent the afternoon with us yeah. to do that. That's so cool. It's so awesome to hear that. I, yeah, we had the opportunity to meet a, a, a fair amount of really cool and, you know, um, great directors and creatives there and in other walks, you know, other parts of our career. We've met awesome people and worked with them. I think I, I did have a special kind of affinity for him when we got to meet him. And I think one of the times that he was hanging out at the theater was I was there that day with you, Evan, um, talking to him a bit. And, uh, you know, even though he was this like towering figure, I felt he was like really approachable yeah. and down to earth in a way. And he would engage with you and talk to you and treat you with respect, you know. And uh, I just thought, you know, for me, like I, I kind of thought, looked at it as though like he had this great career, this great success. You know, he came from humble beginnings and then he had these huge peaks, you know. And then he had this like a big, this career like went downhill Drought. too. So he kind of like yeah. had a, a landing where he became a normal person again. And just a normal person that had really good stories that he was willing to share. So that was the kind of the vibes that I didn't know him. You know, I only saw him those couple times, but that was the that was the vibe that I got from him. You know, hundred percent. Yes, right on the money. Right on the money. Yeah, I agree with that. Hundred um, percent. Yeah, because he he would do these Q and A's around. He would do Q and A's for this film, for Cruising, you know, Exorcist, and all those Q and A's were like hour long stand up. You know, like kind of like an evening with William Friedkin, where he would just tell you the funniest fucking stories and. It was great. So I'm cool that it's cool that he got to have that, you know, that sort of last 10 years, you know, or so. Right. Um, But let's get into this here, a little transition. You mentioned he came from humble beginnings. Let's sort of talk about um, as a nice companion piece to tonight's episode is uh, William Friedkin's memoir, which is called The Friedkin Connection, which uh, I is a source uh, for tonight's episode on Sorcerer. So um, here's a little uh, part here i'm just going to read guys that is kind of a snapshot of where he was at going into sorcerer because of course he had just done exorcist right tom which was a fucking phenomenon right it was right then the biggest film you know the biggest box office blockbuster ever i mean you know star wars you know or no actually even jaws jaws had two years to be the top film of all time and even beyond box office sales it was a phenomenon like everybody everybody was talking about it i know this is doofy but it was kind of like the Barbie of its time where that it broke mm. out and everyone <laughs> has seen it or has a thought on it or something, you know, or they've heard about hearing about it. You know, the Exorcist Dude. was not a movie, not normal at all. It was beyond ph- ph- a phenomenon. An experience to, that you had to witness. Even my dad um, still talks about it to this day. He saw The Exorcist on mescaline and has never and and couldn't actually sleep for about 2 years after he did Holy that. Sh- and wow. uh, he still talks about that. He That's still cool. talks about that. <laughs> I bet. I it's it's very special. Yeah. It's yeah. definitely one of those things that entered into the public consciousness in a way that other films haven't like everybody knows the pea soup thing, the head spinning thing. You know, there are all these moments that are just like remixed and skits, parodies, other films, references, you know, like I think it's, I found it hard. The first time I watched it, I had a hard time watching it with fresh eyes yeah. as a kid 
because you already know so much about it going in just because it it, it so reached iconic. into the culture. Yeah, yeah, that totally. So here's a little snapshot of where Billy's at at this point uh, post-Exorcist. Um, he says, uh, and I won't do the Billy voice, <laughs> but he says, oh. um, <laughs> at that point, I was spending more time with lawyers and accountants than actors or writers. I had fallen into the trap of losing focus on the work and concentrating instead on peripherals. My behavior during this period was erratic. I was at the edge of a cliff and my demons were standing by waiting to push me off. And that's, I think, code a little bit, Tom, right? For a little nose candy action, right? In other words, cocaine. Yeah. <laughs> um, I think he was one of the most notorious, uh, you know, Hoover's. Uh, Hoover's. The, uh, the Booger Sugar back then. Yeah. <laughs> um, like, like the poster child of Hollywood's, you know, cocaine uh, madness. Yeah. Yeah, and, and I feel that it's, it does bleed through, and you feel it almost in this film, you know? Oh, yeah, which will definitely... Yeah. It's Yeah, absolutely. And where did they uh, shoot it again? <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, is that why he's like, let's shoot <laughs> <Where did laughs> <they> it? <laughs> Dominican Republic. It? Yeah. Ultimately, oh, the no, Dominican Republic. Set? Excuse me, where was it set? Columbia. Columbia. Yeah. <laughs> okay, okay. All right, R reading on here. The question of what to do next continued to elude me. It had been more than two years since I directed a film, and I was going back and forth between New York and Los Angeles, buying paintings and antique furniture and enjoying the spoils of success. Little Lars Ulrich action there, I guess, for homeboy there. Um, <laughs> I, was no longer, I was no longer the kid from Chicago who walked or took the subway everywhere and played, a pick up and played in pickup basketball games. I was playing in tennis instead and driving a new Mercedes. There was a disconnect between who I was and what I had become. And then he goes on to sort of talk about, you know, his various talk show appearances. And on those talk show appearances, he was frequently asked, what were the films that influenced him? <clears throat> and he says, the two that came to mind were H.G. Clouseau's Wages of Fear and Diabolique, both French films I hadn't seen for 20 years. I started to think about a new version of The Wages of Fear, not a remake, but based on the same premise, four men, strangers in a foreign country, fugitives, broken desperate who sign on to drive two trucks carrying crates of nitroglycerin to extinguish an oil well f oil well fire 200 miles away across unforgiving landscapes the premise seemed to me a metaphor for the countries of the world find a way to work together or explode my film would have wholly original characters i would make it grittier than Clouseau's film with the documentary feel for which i had become known mm -hmm. and um that's that's that that's what he set out to do, man. He wanted to make a film about the unlikeliest of heroes, a, a swindler, a terrorist, a hitman, and a driver for the Irish mob with no redeeming characteristics, but make the audience care about those people by the end. That was that right. was his uh, his goal. I have a thought about the the remake aspect of it. You know that he wanted to remake the Clouseau movie, and like I noticed, in he's at one point he's talking about um, like something I read. He was saying. Uh, that he basically looked at the Coppola's the conversation as like he was the first time he saw it he's like oh this is a this is a ripoff or a remake of Blow Up but just with recording instead mm -hmm. of a photographer so I wondered if he was if that kind of got the wheels in his brain going about like what could I remake you know well, like you, you know uh, that's interesting Coppola I heard that he was very or the, or was most competitive with Coppola mm -hmm. of all the big you know um, that pack of uh, you know uh, new Hollywood guys and um, he was getting wind of you know everything happening with Apocalypse Now, and he went, "Well, I'm going to the fucking jungle too. I'll see you there, buddy." You know? <laughs> uh, I don't know. I read that, and it makes sense to me. Like, it the makes way sense. those guys were back then, the egos, you know. Yeah, 
Yeah, totally. There's um, definitely something about like, let's do this big excessive movie and that's super risky in the jungle. How can I reach out to like the edges of what's possible with yeah. Fitzcarraldo, you know, this movie, Apocalypse Now? It's all like yeah. just filmmakers, like thrill seeking. How can I live on the edge, teeter upon, uh, on the edge of a hit movie and a complete disaster? Sounds very cocaine to me. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah, totally. And and it, it it is it does feel like out of all the films in his filmography, it's very eclectic, interesting filmography. Freaking this one, Sorcerer does feel like his most kind of Herzog attempt. You know, the right. idea of what we talked about in, in the episode about Aguirre, Wrath of God, or of mm-hmm. course with Fitzcarraldo, like the idea right. of doing the impossible, trying to bring everybody, subject everybody to realizing this very lofty and ambitious vision that's yeah. almost unfilmable. Do we know that he saw Aguirre? We have like evidence of that. Has he said before, like, well, wow, when I saw that, that changed No, he, he didn't, but he does allude to Fitzcarraldo in the okay. memoir. He talks, he almost relates to the experience, not of the film, but of actually the man himself, you know, in the ambition of wanting to okay. do a certain set piece the most famous set piece in the film, the bridge sequence, which we'll get to, um, in terms of what went into actually doing that, because yeah, as you'll hear, it was a fucking nightmare. The only thing that's missing is he should have hired a documentary film crew to make like one of the best movies about making movies ever, just like Apocalypse has with Hearts of Darkness, and right. Fitzcarraldo has with um, Burden, of uh, Burden of Dreams. Right, a hundred percent. Sorcerer needs yeah. one of those. Damn it. Yeah, yeah that would have been awesome. <laughs> that's a good point. So. To get back to the backstory, um, so with that kind of concept in mind, with wages of the f- wages of fear, this kind of loose, modern, more remake, edgier, grittier version of it, um, Universal mm-hmm. was the studio that sort of uh, allowed him to do that and to develop the idea, uh, to get it to to to, to develop the screenplay um, as the first project they would do together, Studio and Friedkin. And um, but first, he had to actually acquire the rights to Wages of Fear in order to move ahead. Um, Clouseau did not own them, but the author of the source material, a French author named Georges Arnaud, uh, who had a longstanding feud with Clouseau, actually is the guy that retained the rights. Um, He was happy to license the rights to Friedkin. However, he wanted Friedkin to meet with Clouseau in order to make sure uh, he he got his blessing. Um, And Clouseau... Uh, who is uh, who actually would 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 pass away the year of release of Sorcerer in 1977? He was not in good health. He was just about to get you know surgery, and he was not it was not looking good for him. But Clouseau could not even himself wrap his head around the idea of why somebody like Friedkin, who's at the peak, the apex of his career, just having this huge monster hit film, would want to remake his movie, you know, from 20 years yeah. ago. Um, he couldn't even understand it. And of course, he had no power to stop him from doing it, but he wasn't jazzed on the idea. Um, mm. And as usual, Friedkin, audible style, you know, he's always thinking on his feet. When he kind of saw the conversation was going a little south, he's like, look, um, I'll give you a share of the profits. You know, so if, if this movie becomes a success, you'll share in it too. And I think that's what sort of pushed the needle forward and he was able to get the green light blessings in order to bad do deal it. though <laughs> yeah right <laughs> right right don't do it but yeah right. just, let's, it's let's funny just that he calls it uh, oh sorry you can go sorry i just you know that he uh the fact that he whenever he's asked about it being a remake he gets kind of bristly about it in interviews i noticed even though it is like i guess it's an adaptation of the book and more than that's how yeah, he vision envisions it, it but way. i mean it is sort of like splitting hairs like 
you know, it's not a it's not a remake. It's just basically I did the same film but differently. You know, mm-hmm. <laughs> the same, uh, yeah, the source same story. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. it's funny. It's just caught my ear when you were just saying that. Uh, you know, even Clouseau was like, uh, like, what's the Exorcist director doing next? Like, what now? Because yeah. that's what he is. Like, forget mm-hmm. Friedkin. It's like he's the Exorcist director. And uh, this is again, this is a classic thing we call the Magnolias. It's when someone makes the big movie and then they have the blank check. That's what it's all about. And Friedkin had maybe, I really feel like maybe the biggest blank check of the 70s at least. And, um, you know, this that's 73. And by, yeah. yeah. And, and then by 70, so 73 is Exorcist. By 77, he did uh, Sorcerer. And it does seem curious because, you know, that was a huge film. Now, the thing is, another movie in 77 that came out, came out was The Exorcist to The Heretic. The sequel to his film, yeah. which uh, is, is an abomination, you know, and derided by everybody. And it's still kind of, in my opinion, sucks and is fun, but it's just not good, kind of. That could um, be a future episode so, of the show, by the way. I think. I, I, we, we will definitely have to do that. Maybe in October yeah. for the yeah. Halloween times. Ooh, but anyway, I guess all idea. I'm trying to say is like, um, that's Exodus uh, 2 and its execution uh, is a classic Hollywood mentality. And also that's when, um, you know, sequels started really happening. You know, like this is, you know, I, I was also just thinking, uh, I'm giving maybe a larger cultural context, is we were talking about a cusp, um, you know, for a 67 to 68 in the beginning of our polling, and that we were big on cusp. Cusp! You know, it was between, you know, old school Hollywood and the new school Easy Rider Hollywood. This is a big cusp that Sorcerer is falling into, which is 77 into 78. Mm -hmm. And my point is that all I remember is so Sorcerer does come out and it doesn't do well because, of course, not. Even though they tried to make it seem like um, it's the Exorcist director and the title seems kind of demonic, like go and see it. And it just, everybody's like, I don't huh? know. I'm just looking at a truck. Like, what's, what's going on? Yeah, like, yeah, not going. Yeah, yeah. And then a week later, you know, it was like Star Wars. And then they kept uh, they kept bringing back Star Wars. And one of the victims was like the second and third week uh, air showings of um, Sorcerer. So I think people, you know, it's like it, it was um, it was an odd decision, but it was uh, it was fatal because. He didn't get the memo as he, and I'm re- quoting him right now. He's like, I didn't know that overnight Hollywood became the place of um, cute robots, you know, because <laughs> like, I didn't make a cute robot movie. And so I think this film singularly is fascinating as an artifact. It's basically a ni- hardcore 1972 movie in the middle of a diff- very true. different summer. You know? True. Mm-hmm. Yeah, true. Yeah, true. So, um, yeah, so he gets the rights. Getting back to where we were, he 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 gets the green light to do it, and he pairs up with um, Wally Green, who is the co-writer of the Wild Bunch, uh, to write the script, and they collaborate on this and the Hellstrom Chronicle. Oh yeah, yeah, that's right, that's really? right. Yeah, yeah. So um, they so so they work together, and basically uh, Friedkin calls Wally an encyclopedia of classic art and literature. And he suggested that Friedkin read 100 Years of Solitude, which eventually became the template for Sorcerer. Uh, this idea, um, uh, uh, and then they sort of came up with the four desperate characters, you know, as we said, who would wind up as fugitives in, in a poor village somewhere in South uh, America. Um, and then they sort of kind of tried to, you know, come up with these four different vignettes. And that's how the movie opens. I mean, the movie opens mm-hmm. with, you see these four different vignettes. It feels kind of strange because it's like they're, they're lengthy vignettes. Um, 
obviously the best is the last one in my opinion, but they do feel like, you know, I don't know. It kind of feels like a it's, modern television to me or something like kind of prestige television opening. I could see being something mm, like that, but go ahead. What, like, what were you? It's really uneven. I feel like it's really uneven because the different links, the different times we spend with the characters isn't the same. No, it's very slow. It's like 20 minutes of that, of that intro. And aren't, we're kind of used to like knowing what the story is going to be about within the first 10, right? <laughs> the uh, Sid field yeah. style. Uh, it's a bold uh, script. Choice. Yeah, so like, I mean, 20 minutes, you don't know what this movie's about until like, what, 30, 40 minutes in. You don't get an idea of what mm-hmm. is actually going to happen. Who's the lead, for instance? Yeah. And the, know, intro, the, the intro, of- one more thing about the intro, sorry, just that like everyone's speaking different languages. And mm-hmm. what I had read was that everyone, that people were um, walking out of the theater because they thought it was like a, a foreign movie. Oh. You know, they thought it was, oh. they thought it was going to be all subtitles the whole time. I don't So much them. so that they actually put up a lobby card. And the theaters that said like, oh uh, yeah, you know, they explained that the opening sequences would have subtitles, you know, in English, but they would all be in foreign languages. But don't worry, you know, like there was there was kind of a disclaimer on the yeah. lobby card, like this is not a foreign movie. Don't worry, it'll, oh it'll speak English God. at some point. <laughs> and then ignore down the hall Star Wars, like just yeah. <laughs> watch this movie with like eight different languages for a half an hour. Holy yeah, shit. yeah, yeah. He, he was yeah. a freak. I got to say, it reminds me a little bit in a cool way of the opening of uh, The Marathon Man, and not just because it includes Roy Scheider, but, mm-hmm. uh, and actually even um, French Connection starts kind of oddly, too. So does The subtitles. Exorcist. The Exorcist starts in, oh, the Exorcist? in yeah. Africa or whatever. Is that where it is? It's like 15 minutes in Iraq. He loves that. <laughs> right? He loves that. Oh, but there's, that. well, there's Iraq, but then suddenly you're amongst like all these strangers in like Washington, D.C. Like you don't see uh, Linda mm-hmm. Blair for a while either. I know. Right, Good right. point. He loves that. He, he loves, loves these the, crazy. He loves preamble. the foreign. He loves the, the foreign prologue. You know, yeah. it is sort of like literary. You know, you, you in a book, yeah. you wouldn't bat an eye at that, you know. Sure. Um, but in a film, it's just a little bit it's it stands out a little bit more. And yeah, yeah I feel like in The Exorcist, you get to know that character, Father Marion, that's going to come back later. In this one, the a weird thing later. is you spend <laughs> you spend 20 minutes with these people and I still don't feel like I know anybody except for the French guy, you know, that well. He's yeah, the that's only the one, one that's, who you get insight into. Yeah, because they spend the most time on him. Yeah, let's talk about what these three little, or sorry, four little vignettes are. Um, of course, you do have the one you mentioned, um, which is the one in Paris, France. Uh, there's a guy who is uh, a stockbroker sort of um, working on an embezzlement and kind of taking down his, his in-law's family, drives his brother-in-law to commit suicide, there's an um, Arab terrorist who blows up a bank in Jerusalem. There's also a the, the film opens with a hitman uh, who kills a stranger in a hotel in Mexico. And then my favorite, the one that kind of feels like it should have been what, what the Saints of Newark felt like, <laughs> is the. Stop it! Told you not to bring that there. up. <laughs> yeah, please. Is There's the, a uh, jar for that. You have to put a dollar in the jar. In the, in the, pre, pre, uh, the Sopranos prequel. Now I can't uh, watch Sopranos for another two years. Yeah, yeah exactly. Because I That's remember the that. No, no, totally. Actually, I was thinking, personally, I don't, I'm not sure where you're going with this, but I was just like, can we have that movie like, mm-hmm. like set in like some shitty part of like New Jersey? I like, know. Like an hour and a half on that, you know? I know, I know. You're right, you're right. Uh, and of course, that set piece is the introduction of Roy Scheider's character. It's the last vignette. Great. And he's Great a wheelman for a gang of thieves who just robbed a church. Uh, mob thieves, of course, who robbed a church in Elizabeth, New Jersey. And it builds to this incredible crescendo 
of a car crash. He's the only survivor of the car crash. Super intense. Uh, Well-executed moment. Very uh, almost traumatic when, you know, he sees the other guy in the car all covered in blood as he's staggering out of the um, out of the car. And that actually I just want to point. I'm sure we'll talk more about this in a minute. But Roy Scheider and we'll talk about how he got into the movie, too, as well. Man, I think he's great in this movie. I don't know if you guys agree, but dude, Mm -hmm. he's like. I don't. I don't want to go. Maybe I'm. I don't want to overstep and say Martin Sheen Apocalypse Now. Like that's what Ramey was saying too when we were watching it. I, I was dude, thinking of that. He really kind of yeah. goes there with this he performance. Look, yeah. he's and then he did all that jazz tears later. Like we love him. Like he's still him. underrated. Like he's yes. still under like Hoffman and Pacino. But like he's on par. He puts up high powered performances. You know. He does. And this is one of them. He does, yeah. Um, real quick, I just want to talk about some of these vignettes really quick. Um, just a couple of anecdotes that from Friedkin's book that were crazy. So the Jerusalem sequences where we're seeing the terrorist bombing, when he, so this is just anecdotes of just how crazy this production is. So they had the cooperation of the Israeli security forces when they're filming there, and they actually appear in the movie as themselves. Again, a Friedkin sort of doc trick. Um and but while they're filming this sequence of a terrorist bombing, an actual terrorist bombing occurred two blocks oh, away shit. from the film set. And so Freakin and crew rushed over to actually steal shots of the aftermath of the real bombing. And so a lot of those sequences are actually in the film that you're seeing uh, of all the people scrambling and some of stuff. And, you know, I love so, those wow. instincts and just to have that, uh, you know, the balls in the moment to do that. Like, we're going to drop this, do that, you know, and go over there. And I mean, that's that's a real dynamite filmmaker instincts there, you know, totally. He's well, he so did good start with documentary. You know, did we say that yeah. before? Clearly. We said that, that a couple 60s, times. Every episode of that. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. 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 I mean, we went to town on that with the French Connection episode, and you right. know how he comes from. Yeah, changing people's lives with doc filmmaking. It's a huge part of his mm-hmm. DNA. Um, in the New Jersey sequence, real quick. Um, again, you know, Friedkin is this type of guy who's so connected in the world of organized crime figures. Mm-hmm. He knows them all. You know, and 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 yeah. we'll talk more about that too. But he. Um, he, of course, knew a guy who really did. This is a true story. He really did carry out a robbery of a church in New Jersey. And so Whoa. basically he dictated his entire experience. And what you see in the film, minus the car accident, is um, you know what r- really happened in terms of the heist and everything. Yeah. So, wow. so he, he turns that real, reality thing into back into the movie. And That's my cool. favorite little underappreciated cinematic detail in the whole New Jersey set vignette, opening vignette. And dude, this movie has some killer pure cinema editing moments. Agreed. Agreed. Um, but Smith, one of, shout out. Oh, the dude, editor. yeah. Dude, this movie is... Even though there's lengthy set pieces that can be trimmed down, it does have... Some of, the, some of its like killer peak action set pieces are some of the best Absolutely. edited sequences ever. Anyway... The, that little moment where we realize that there's a wedding happening at the church while the heist mm. is going on, and then it cuts to the bride marrying this guy, and he and she has a black eye. The bride oh, yeah. with a black eye is with no explanation or context or exposition sure. is an incredible like jersey detail. Halloween there. costume. Yeah. <laughs> Box office gold, right? <laughs> Box office. Yeah. There you go. Yeah, uh, yeah, did, yeah. Uh, did you mention that the guy the, the in the in the heist, the dude is the guy who's uh, the main leader in the heist, that gang member or whatever. He is the guy who told him the story. He's like oh. a real life oh, yeah, Irish yeah, yeah. gangster. 
You're right. Yep. Yep. That's right. So again, folds him in, folds him into what he's doing. That's cool. So <clears throat> that is so. Cool. So now, like, let's just talk a little bit about the shooting location because you know majority of the movie takes place in South America, and he knew he needed to find that, and he wanted that authentic location that you know uh, he didn't want to build a studio set. He didn't want to shoot it in. You know, somewhere in the western part Santa of the country. Santa Monica Mountains or something. Yeah, yeah. Right. No, he wanted to go for that dock authenticity of, you know, finding a yeah. small, you know, poor village to film this in. And so he fell in love with Ecuador. That was where he wanted to film this movie. He loved the authenticity of it. He toured around. He met the natives. He just had a real connection to it. But the studio and uh, maybe... and primarily Lou Wasserman, who was the head of Universal at the time, was absolutely against the idea. No way you're going to Ecuador. You'll get killed. You get your cast and crew killed. We could never get insurance to film in a place like that, you know, and stuff mm. like that. So That's a good Lou Wasserman. <laughs> Is it? I don't even know if he sounds like Yeah, it's like the best that. I've heard. <laughs> no, <Lou> shut up. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you really? I, I got fl- flattered for half a second there. Um, okay. So... <laughs> Friedkin, though, decides that he would circle back. He'd put a pin in that, like, fuck, I want to film in Ecuador, and I'm not going to fight this guy right now, but I'm going to put a pin in it, and I'm going to try to put together the world's best, most irresistible cast ever. So then mm. he will he will not say no to filming in right. Ecuador when he sees these great people. And the people he wanted to get on board for this movie originally was Steve McQueen in the Roy Scheider role, right? Pretty cool. Pretty cool. Yep, I think, and he wanted some heavy-ass hitters. For the hitman, uh, in the very beginning of the film, he wanted that to be played by Marcello Mastriani. So that would have been sick. That would have cool. been sick. Yeah, that would have been sick. And yeah. for the French guy, the embezzler, he wanted uh, Lino Ventura, one of France's leading actors, um, mm-hmm. to play that character. And the guy who plays uh, the the in the uh, in the terrorism scenes, he is the guy that would eventually that he would cast this this guy with a one one word name. Um, um, Amadou. Amadou, right, yeah, Amadou, there you go. Um, and so, yeah, so that was what he wanted to do, but then, of course, he had to convince all these guys to go to fucking Ecuador and spend right. two to three months, and it was easier said than fucking done. Um, I love that idea of using all the all the biggest movie stars from all around the world. That's a great idea. You know, it's too bad it didn't work out. <laughs> yeah, it's like a Tarantino move, kind of. This idea yeah. of, like, here's... Mm. Like, you know, he wants to make this, like, film starring people from different corners of the earth that are going to come together in this random town. I do like that idea. And so let's take yeah. the titans of those places mm-hmm. and cast them in those roles. It's kind of a cool idea. Um, and so he approached Steve McQueen, who had just started dating Ali McGraw at that time. And he's like, there's no... And basically McQueen's like, there's no way I could leave her and, you know, be in Ecuador, or be in Ecuador for two, three months. And he said, unless you can write a part for her or you can make her a producer that gives her a reason to be there because she has her own career. And, yeah. you know, Freakin was just too much of a control freak at the time and was just like, no way, I can't do that. You know, he was he was he self-admittedly in the in the in the autobiography or in his memoir, he says he was arrogant at the time. And he mm-hmm. came to realize that, man, a close up of Steve McQueen in this movie was definitely worth more you know, than the the location he wanted, right? It, it could have been a hit. That could have tilted it over, yeah. Yeah, to yeah. Be a pretty good hit, yeah. Yeah. It seemed like he knew that he needed stars in this role. And, and, you know, initially he set out thinking, I need stars. This movie needs stars. These characters need stars. Right. 
But then I think he was so full of himself at that time. And I think he thought, my theory is he looked at The Exorcist and he's like, well, I did that fucking movie and it didn't have any stars in it. Yeah. I'm the fucking star. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. So I think he thought like, I think he thought like I could do this without stars. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And so in the, yeah. And now he reflects on it. Yeah, hubris. Yeah, yes. That's actually the title of the chapter. Oh, it is? uh, In his memoir. I think it is, yeah. I love that. I love that. No, I love that he had some self reflection on it, you know, and, you know, as he got older and looked back on all the times that he made bad mistakes or was an asshole. (laughs) He does. He does. Own up to it. He does in the memoir, especially in the Exorcist stuff. But he, he talks here about how he really regrets just not, you know, he should have bent on the location. Got Steve McQueen in the role, given his girlfriend, a, you know, a fucking role or a producer credit, you know, like, let's just go, you know, and, and, he, and he didn't. Um, Lino Ventura was on the fence and then uh, uh, and then Mastriano was out because of a family situation. And so he didn't get anybody he wanted, basically. Uh, yeah. He did. He did meet with Robert Mitchum to try and get him in the in the lead role. Wow. That's wild. Um, That's and, very interesting. And he met with him. Had to go toe to toe drinking vodka with him at eleven in the morning, and uh, Mitchum, Mitchum ultimately, ultimately said, "Why would I want to go to Ecuador for two or three months to fall out of a truck? I can do that outside my house." So, <laughs> but dumb shit. All these comedians. Yeah. I know. <laughs> yeah, I so. love that when people are like, "I'm gonna someday this this anecdote's gonna be written down in a book, so I need to have a good line." <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah exactly. Right. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> so. So, so at this point, the studio was not enthusiastic about the movie. He couldn't get the cast he wanted to. So this was the time where he did take a step back and try to refocus and get something less ambitious. Roy Scheider's name came up because after the French Connection, you know, he made a splash there, but he had just mm. been in Jaws, man. And so he was a big deal. Which was uh, the top movie. It, 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 like I said before, it usurped you know, the brief reign of Exorcist as being the top film ever. So seems like yeah. a smart decision to me, though the star of Jaws is the shark and not quite Roy Scheider, but yeah, yeah, yeah. what are you going to totally, do? Totally, totally. <laughs> but Roy and uh, Friedkin had some beef because Friedkin turned him down for the role of Father Karras uh, in, 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 in oh. The Exorcist. So Roy was right. bitter and Friedkin... Well, they knew each even, other from French Connection anyway, right? So. Yeah, no, they did, but... Right. But like he was still bitter during the Exorcist being you know being uh, turned down, and so Freakin still even then had misgivings about bringing him back. But Universal oh, said they shit. would greenlight the film with Roy as the lead. They said that was good enough. Um, but they you know he had to obviously you know recast those other two roles. And the mm-hmm. studio even then with Roy attached was like, man, we're not going to do this until we find a financial partner to share the risk with this movie because right. it's it's too much money it's too big of a risk and so actually when you know you're in you're in trouble when you have to bring in another studio when you got I two know. studios <laughs> back in your film not a good and, sign i gotta say the studio uh had the right instincts you know this film yeah. did tank you know oh yeah i feel like everybody was along the way had missed you know they were a little unsure but they it was just that era where they just trusted the artist and believed in him and he was a genius once before and i think that well, they, they were well, i'm hearing that they were had a lot of misgivings they were not yeah but they still gave him tons of money you know to do it i mean they still let him do it yeah yeah yeah, yeah. yeah but right. they but they had I to mean, bring they, on paramount paramount stepped up to the plate and and they came in shared half the costs but they told him you have to film it in the dominican republic as they're you know there were ways to um you know further amortize those costs 
And so they went and they toured right. Dominican Republic. He wasn't as happy with it, but he found a town he could live with and, you know, and, and set it in. Supposedly, the reasoning for that is because the, the guy, the, the parent umbrella company that owned uh, Paramount was Gulf and Western, and they met with that guy, Bloodhorn, you know, the Charlie Bloodhorn, mm-hmm. and he's recommended Ecuador because they already get Gulf and Western already had all these holdings there, you know, and control of the government. So they, they are already this corporation that was embedded in, in that the Dominican country, Republic, saying, you were right. saying. Like, like, Dominican, imported right, yeah, yeah. Stuff. yeah. Right, right. And they were in, sleazy, like colonizing exactly. movie studio stuff. And yeah. I think he thought he could start like a film studio there or something, right. you know, or like wow. make that a center of production or something. There was some slimier kind of corporate, exactly. you know, exploitative yeah. uh, mm-hmm. rationale behind shooting there. Third world exploitation, yep. <laughs> so then Friedkin says that the film became an obsession. It was to be my magnum opus, the one in which I'd stake my reputation. I felt that every film I'd ever made was preparation <laughs> for this one. <laughs> Tom. <laughs> I didn't say anything. <laughs> uh, um, but um, he did note that when he was uh, in Ecuador originally touring, uh, originally looking for locations, he saw that on the trucks that people had written, like they'd given the trucks names. And you see right. that in the film as well, like Lazaro, which he actually saw and uses in the, in, 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 in the movie. But yeah. at the same time, he was... For the other truck, he was listening to Miles Davis's record "Sorcerer," okay, no. and that's where that the title dope. comes from. Oh. Yeah, that. Yeah, it and almost those, makes me think it's a good cool. title. I know but it's not. It's yeah, not. I, I did not know that. <laughs> yeah, I, I can't be the only person who was disappointed that this wasn't about a like wizard a, movie. A wizard, yeah. Yeah, yeah I know. <laughs> no, well, like I said, I mean. Um, like uh, you know, part, part I've read that Friedkin in the back of his mind was at least like I don't know if they're like maybe like glancing at Exorcist director's new movie Sorcerer and they're not really yes. paying attention. They'll just file in because it seems like of course the Exorcist guy made yeah. the Sorcerer, right. you know, and uh, right. I, I vaguely remember that as a kid. Even it was like it is a deal. Yeah. Everyone did think it was a horror supernatural thing, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. And I the music actually her- lends itself to that in the trailer, you know. Right. So I read some criticism saying that people that that thought it was the exorcist went in and were disappointed. And then other people wrote it off because they're just like, oh, it's that exorcist guy doing the same thing again. Oh, you know, yeah. so it, it, does, it right. appeals to nobody. You right. Know? right. 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 <laughs> well, his original title he wanted was Ball Breaker. I love that. I read that. Yeah. <laughs> Now that's that is, that's William Friedkin. Like that's yeah, a title. One. That's, that's a, a title. killer title. Yeah. Would that have been one of the like I'm assuming one of the names of the trucks then in the film, right? Maybe like, I don't know. That's the conception. I don't know. Um, but okay. the studio was like, breaker. "Are you out of your mind?" Um, yeah. No way. Of course. <laughs> no. So it turned out. To, he says in the book, it quote turned Shame. out to be the most difficult, frustrating, and dangerous film I've ever made, and it took a toll on my health as well as my reputation. Um, so we talked about, Check. uh, this, yeah, the, the, the opening vignettes, but, um, you know, getting into the Dominican Republic and here's an example of how dangerous it was. Uh, basically as soon as they got there, the fixer that they had, who was supposed to secure them permits and allow them to shoot anywhere, uh, didn't come through. And so they, he had to meet with a Dominican army colonel who had recently just executed a communist in broad daylight in a restaurant. Uh, for the for the hell of it, 
And the, so this colonel agreed to meet with William Friedkin and some of his crew and uh, um, at his home. And so Friedkin shows up. There's 12 soldiers milling about with AK-47s scattered around. And the colonel didn't speak any English. And uh, so the screenwriter, Wally, spoke Spanish, so he translated. And so the colonel gave him a proud tour of his paintings and his kitsch that he had all around in his house. And Friedkin said, you know, it was all truly garbage you know and uh so as soon as the colonel guy would basically like so what do you think of this painting in spanish friedkin would say out loud in english uh wow what a piece of shit that is or wow pure howard johnson you know and so right. wally was like he was doing it like as a as a rib you know like he was trying to make wally fight uh, or sorry trying to make wally laugh but he was fighting right. back laughter and then it became apparent that later into the meeting um the mistress of the colonel actually spoke English and heard everything right. he was saying. Right. And he says Uh-oh. that it is a fucking miracle that she did not give them away or he might not uh, have, he might've yeah. died right there, right then and there. Cut his head off. Yeah. Yeah, 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 exactly. So, um, but as we get into these scenes that take place in a Colombian village, the establishing shots, man are amazing in this movie. You see all yes. the doc style, establishing stuff um it's incredible the uh you start to hear that tangerine dream soundtrack which um we we should talk about you know here for a second um you want to take that away marcus uh sure so all i know is that you know it was a few couple years earlier he had actually saw tangerine he was in germany you know, they were already a band since what, like maybe '69 or something. Then they yeah. start with the, playing yeah. like flute and stuff. They they mm-hmm. changed a lot, but it was originally right. just kind of like flute and uh, it was always spacey. With some yeah, electronics, yeah. yeah, yeah. They called it like cosmic or cos- like cosmic music cosmic. back then, right? Yeah, so, um, but uh, yeah, so he saw them play at a black for in the black forest at a church. It was a three-hour concert that started at midnight. Amazing. It was uh, in complete darkness with uh, the only lights being the little LEDs on the synthesizer. So it was the only lights in the whole room. God. And the and the, and, and the entire space is just filled with stoned young people oh. watching. <laughs> the world the only not, way to see Tangerine Dream, really. You know? yeah, saying, yeah. The world is not a fucking cool place anymore. It used to be. And, yeah. Uh, that's definitely what it was. I, I know. You hate hearing that stuff. And I know. Just two uh, seconds on him and and his taste with music. You know, just yeah. to refer back to The Exorcist, The Exorcist had a score made by Lalo Schifrin, you know, who we all know and love. And uh, Friedkin, you know, he hears it and he goes, this is garbage. It sounds like fucking mariachi music, you know. Yeah. That's a quote. <laughs> and then he's just going through, you know, because it's Warner Brothers, uh, Exorcist. He's going through, like, the new releases in the Warner Brothers records. <laughs> yeah. And he's going, whatever, whatever, whatever. And then he hears tubular bells. And it's it at first like no one would have even he probably wouldn't have even thought like this would be good for horror or no one mm-hmm. would have suggested it ever like a music supervisor like why don't you do this weird you know electronic uh, instrumental and of course tubular bells he 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 saw like the potential for its yeah, power yeah. as a horror soundtrack yeah. and the rest is history so big respect to him it, on his totally. ear big respect on his ear. And the extra, it only shows up twice in The Exorcist too, right? At the end, it just kind of bookends the movie too, right? He doesn't actually use a lot of music, but it comes in hard at the end. But I'm just saying, yeah, like, and now with Tangerine Dream, yeah, it's so cool. That's all. Anyway, he said he he did say like if he knew about Tangerine Dream earlier, he would have put them on the soundtrack (laughs) to The Exorcist. Much to the chagrin of. There we go. Okay. Yeah, but but also sad. 
we, we should also say with the Tangerine Dream uh, score, you know, this idea was that he reached out to, he sent the script to Edgar Frosse and he said, you know, let me know what you think. And it wasn't until they were filming on location in Mexico, they actually moved, a, we'll get to that, they moved the production to Mexico, um, that just reels of tape showed up and he had already made the score uh, without even telling him. And so then um, it's really cool that they just scored the movie to the script. You know, I love that. That is cool. Uh, yeah, it's amazing. Hot. And I do love that we kicked them off with them being like doing all these soundtracks later, like for Thief or for yeah. Rescue Business. And oh, you know. they're the best. They're the best. Um, so, Definitely. real quick, in this Colombian, I'm looking at the clock. We got 15 minutes left, and I got a lot to, I want to jam on here. Uh, but just real quick, shout out to a couple of little, little set pieces in that early Colombian village stuff. You see that do like when the fucking refinery explodes, it's an epic set piece. Oh my God. Like th- there's the big so freaking good. set piece he's looking for there. Epic. It looks so it, good. It looks so good. The dude's melting skin as he's crawling around oh. is super horrific. <laughs> then after that, it kind of descends into this chaotic sequence that seems like something out of I, I'm going to drop Oliver Stone reference here. It looks like something out of Salvador, you know, um, where yeah. they're doing like the, the like crowd surfing of the dead bodies. Mm-hmm. You that know, came to mind too. Yeah, when they're that's, standing around that's the truck. my favorite scene in the movie. Actually, oh, that's, that's devastating mental. stuff. It is. It's hardcore. You feel the pandemonium. You feel just like that. This is a crazy place. Where are we? It's hell on earth. You know, so mm-hmm. on and so forth. Well, there's some emotional power there too in seeing those bodies being carried by the people. And I think a lot of the movie is like devoid of emotion. You know, so that's like one moment where you get to feel some. Yeah, something. true. I, you know, agreed. True. And 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 one thing about this movie too is. Right after that, and it establishes the mechanic, this idea that they need to get this nitroglycerin over to the oil rig so they can blow it up and stop it from being on fire and stuff, so on mm-hmm. and so forth. Mm-hmm. That's when we get this killer montage. They've fucking recruited the four people, and they're fucking men on a mission, and it's montage mode where they're fortifying the fucking trucks, and they're they're really getting into it, and it's incredible. And he would hone that montage uh, style even more so into like to like to live and die in LA has some killer montage mm-hmm. work, and it made me reminded me of that. But Tom, you also said before we started recording that one shot in this sequence that you said was like the '80s and the '70s. Oh well, yeah, it's just uh, right. The music drops, and um, it's all blue lit, and the uh, the headlights of backlit, the, uh, yeah. Uh, uh, yeah, a uh, uh, drop, and of course everything's misty. Like they dropped a lot of mist on the set. And I just went to myself, like, that's the first shot of the '80s, and it's in 1977. <laughs> you know, yeah. uh, I've always felt that way. I've, I usually think Suspiria, but that's a little more complicated. But that really is like a preview of another time in movies right there in the middle of 77. So. Yeah, absolutely. I, I love how the trucks look like dragons too, you know, like yeah. they've got this, like it almost has like a big gaping mouth yeah. for the grill and this kind of like spikes going down its nose. And it's cool. of course there's like a, there's like a captain howdy drawn on the truck too, right? There is like an exorcist demon drawn oh. like as a, as a graffiti on oh, one of the trucks yeah, right. that's cool there's a couple of spots in the movie where he just he like coked out i guess put in a couple straight up <laughs> exorcist references because there's, there's also like a face in the mountain but yeah it's definitely got like a captain howdy graffiti on nice. the truck that's cool um so yeah and then more issues more problems on set so basically when he saw the first rushes of all the jungle stuff it was all underexposed 
He was fucking oh. pissed. And he fired the DP and hired a new one. Um, crew, crew members were getting seriously sick from food poisoning, gangrene, and malaria. He says almost half the crew went into the hospital or had to be sent home. Um, so just these, these, and you really feel it when you're seeing these, when you're seeing these set pieces, especially getting to some of the most dire ones. Um, you really start to feel just like, how did Roy Scheider get through this? How did they get through this? It must have been a yeah. fucking just hell. Um, and let's let's just get into two of my favorite set pieces in the film, two probably the biggest ones, the bridge crossing scene, you know, and for him, for, for for Friedkin, this was the big scene. This was the important scene. And he mm -hmm. says it's the most difficult he's ever attempted at filming. Um, and uh, this is kind of an interesting fact. It was designed uh, and concealed with a hydraulic system with metallic supports. So each truck was able to be invisibly attached to it so it would sway but it wouldn't capsize and that was the uh -huh. idea uh the bridge yeah. itself cost one million dollars and took oh. three months to build and oh. as it was finished because they 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 like chose these this river rapids for it to like build over and as they yeah. were building it the river dried up so they're like fuck there's no water uh. this is a nightmare and so it was like, what do we do? And so he was unwavering. There was escalating costs. They were losing crew, as I said, to illness. And they decided, YOLO, we're going to dismantle this bridge and move it to Mexico, where they scouted a new location for a river to shoot that scene. But guess what happens? The fucking river dries up while they're setting that up. <laughs> yes. And production Jeez. had to be halted in between that and everything. And uh, mm -hmm. so he says, and how they finally did it is they brought in large pipes and pumping equipment and had to basically Fitzgeraldo yeah. style move water from one place to the other in order to do it. Yeah. And he says that the sequence is 12 minutes in the film. It's incredible shit when you see it. Yeah, but that, it that, se mm. that sequence itself cost more than $3 million in order to do. So a huge percentage. Wow. Of budget. Yeah. The, 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 the best parts of this movie are just pure suspense. And like yeah. that is, you know, that mm -hmm. bridge moment is just, you're on the edge of your seat and like yeah. it is, something that he really is the master of you know it sounds like a platitude or whatever but i think it, it shows this movie is just i don't know uh the suspenseful aspects are so well executed it's incredible suspension it's bridge. so tense you know yeah. it's so tense and the idea of course you know inspired by wages of fear but the idea of also mm -hmm. transporting this material that could explode you could die is you know yeah. incredible yeah. it adds so much to an already it, intense it's been the most expensive uh, case of dynamite ever uh, <laughs> uh purchase though right like i'm wondering the whole time why didn't they just buy some new dynamite from somewhere and else like fly a helicopter <laughs> no, you wouldn't have a movie i know but that kind of oh, forecasts right, okay. no but, movie. But, but but that but but that sort of forecasts like movies like speed or like these kind of gimmick action films that yes. would like happen in the 90s that were like okay you got to do this but this is like the the fucking uh you know the handicap right so yeah, it's it's, right. It's, an, it's an amazing idea but that set piece is so intense, so incredible. The way it's shot, it's the way it looks, the graininess of it, the the just the, the sound, the sound of that set, set that mm -hmm. whole set piece is incredible. Loud, blaring, insane. Very wet. <clears throat> very wet. Very incredible. Supposedly, the truck did tank a couple times into the river when they were shooting too, right? Oh like it, it, wow! It, I didn't that's know that. what it's what he claimed anyway. Oh, that wow. It did fall over a couple of times. Jesus Christ! Yeah. Um, the other amazing. <laughs> well, Roy Scheider's actually driving too, by the way. Right, like he's uh, they didn't like the stuntmen in the movie weren't actually working a lot. A lot of the guys were doing their own stunts, so he's actually driving. And Jeez, had to do like driving classes and stuff. Insane, insane. Um, 
one of the other amazing set pieces too, and this is what happens right after that, is the the tree in the middle of the road scene where and I love it. I fucking that scene is incredible. The editing in that sequence, the visual storytelling, yes. the pure cinema yes. of that is so fucking top tier. And the um it's I I also just love that. Like that's just this nature element that's in their way, just a tree fucking laying there. Well, I love the one guy's reaction and it's just to fucking laugh. I know. Yeah. You know, like they get past the bridge and then it's just like, womp, womp, you know, like, yeah. like yeah. a tree that's twice or three times as high as, as the uh, t- uh, trucks, you know? Mm-hmm. Totally. Uh, again, but, another, just, go ahead. Oh, no, it's, it's just a moment for all the characterization to come out because there's so little yeah. dialogue in this movie. You get such a little chance to get to know the characters. But right. in that moment, like the, uh, the, the Palestinian guy gets, uh, he gets to use his skill. Yeah. You know, the French guy gets to use his skill negotiating their costs, you know. Uh Roy Scheider gets up the uh the the uh, hitman guy gets to use his skill later, like helping Roy Scheider out. They all have a moment right. where they can call on their like past experiences to shine and you get to it's one of the few moments you get to know their character. And care about is, them and like you want and you and you and you yeah. root for them to get past this. You know, at first, yeah. and that happens way far into the movie, you know, but it, mm-hmm. it, it is successful in making you kind of care about them at that moment. Um, but real quick backstory, uh, behind the scenes anecdote. So the special effects guy who rigged the explosive on the tree did a shitty job. It did not really work to Friedkin's satisfaction. So what does uh, Billy do? Of course, he calls a friend in Queens, New York, named <laughs> Marvin the Torch, okay? Now, this guy... Okay. Real connected, of course, Marvin. It wasn't his real name, but it was his nom de plume. He he was known for blowing up failing businesses to cash in insurance money, you know, uh, turning grocery store store stores into parking lots, as he put it. So wow. he basically called him and was basically, "I need you down here, and uh, you you need to do this." And so he came. The New Jersey down. connection. He came to no Queens, Queens, Queens connection. So Excuse so. Me. So he he comes down to set and he he basically has a little he has like two, you know two suitcases worth of goodies and he puts them down there and blew the fucking tree to smithereens and then departed and left <laughs> and that was it. Wow. Brought wow. in some fucking mob arsonist to do the job. Incredible. Only that's an only freaking only. only I love yeah, that. Only. Yeah. yeah. There's there's one more important detail about that scene. I think the fact that after the explosion happens, there's not like a big celebratory moment like no. in Star Wars and they blow up the Death Star and it's like, Yahoo! You know, right. there's like a big celebration. And then at that moment, it just cuts to the next scene. So like, I feel like it, it, that's kind of informs the whole tone of the movie. You know, True. Yeah. Uh, they just kind of they hit an adversity that they're forced to overcome and they don't like pat each other on the back. It just keeps I going through, trudge through this horrible yeah. task that the existential horrible yeah crying, yeah, yeah existential uh, bleak bleakness well it's yeah. it's i'm glad you mentioned star wars because it couldn't be more different and that's your choice like like this door watch the people not cheer that they're going to live another day or watch you know cute robots like cheering you know just cuz we're the choice people made just mm-hmm. cuz we're sub 5 minutes on the clock this is brutal i'm just going to talk about just a few let's just rifle through a few other moments here uh, through to the end of the film that are worth mentioning. <clears throat> the scene where the French guy and the Palestinian guy die is super harsh. It's so cold in this movie where he's showing him a picture of his family. He's looking yeah. to, he's wanting to go back home. He just fucking drives over the wrong piece of ground 
and they fucking flip their bitch and they get into the yeah. fucking they yeah, roll the down and explode. More great editing. Yeah. Great editing. And it and is the I, only moment of warmth in the whole movie, I think, is him talking about his wife back home and showing her the watch. It's the only moment and then of they warmth die. and it's much. immediately Boom. pulled out of it. Yeah. yeah. And then and then of course it's amazing how it cuts back to Roy and the assassin guy as they're looking on in the distance of the exploded truck, knowing their mm-hmm. fate, like, oh shit, something might be up there. You know, that's incredible mm-hmm. too. Just like, you know, visual storytelling. It's incredible. Yeah. The the bandits scene is really inc- another awesome. way to ratchet up the tension. I love of, their dialogue. Like the yeah. little dove doesn't want to leave its nest. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> totally. But then they get this like, Chilling. like then they get this brutal moment of just like Dude. pure violence where they're chopping people shovel up with the fucking face. shovel to the neck. Yeah. Wicked. Awesome. So great. Um, of course, the assassin dude gets shot. That's harsh. And he dies a slow death, bleeding out in the truck. Um, it's but a bummer. We, we never hear. We never learn anything about like his motivation or where he's from or anything. It's kind of a bummer. It feels like it might be on the cut out of the floor. movie or something. Yeah. You know, I would like to know more about him. Probably, probably. Then we get this incredible, fucking hallucinatory sequence. One of the coolest yeah. scenes in the film, where you're seeing all this double exposure, you know, stuff of like driving through what now looks like a desert wasteland and laughter and playing mm-hmm. back clips. From it looks like another planet almost. It does, like a planet like, of lightning, right? Yes. Or like some uh, uh, persistence of time, like Salvador Dali or something. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, that, it's great. Purple horizons, like there's purple horizons, mm-hmm. which are super sick. Um, and then, of course, it just gets to this point. Like when we see that, it's incredible sound design in that moment. And then, of course, the car breaks down. It's like you know, t- and, and there's a great little visual detail of the speedometer. He's just two miles away because he's written in chalk, 218 miles to the location he needs to right. go. And it breaks down to 216, and that's just like another heartbreaking thing. And then you see this that look on his face, Roy Scheider's face, when he's carrying that case of nitroglycerin, yeah. and his fucking you know he is totally warped. And he reaches that fucking fire, oil fire in the darkness. That mm-hmm. is some Oof. great. That's killer shit. Killer shit. So he did it. Um, he did it. He did do it. <laughs> uh, and of course, uh, he's going to get his citizenship. There's a little epilogue there where he then dances with one of the local women who we see as kind of a recurring background character in this. Mm-hmm. But then the movie sort of ends on kind of a weird, ambiguous note where you get, which I think also heard it maybe, uh, where you get. The two yeah. guys who, you know, are sort of responsible for for Roy Scheider being in Colombia are basically going to walk into that <laughs> restaurant, dropping by at. for a visit. Yeah, a little visit, um, and then yeah. credits. Was it one of those dudes, Randy Jurgensen, too? That from, is, that's uh, my homie. That's my homie, Randy Jurgensen, who is the real life New York City detective who always helps Friedkin get away with oh, crazy shit, right, and cruising right. and French Connection. He makes a cameo right. in this. Shout out to Randy. But yeah, man. Yeah. Um, I mean, film. Well, what do you think? Like, what do you think oh, is going to happen to? Roy? I'm sure they're going to ice him. You know, it's kind of Sopranos. For some reason, Sopranos. Oh, yeah. uh, you know, season yeah. finale or series finale He's got moment. Like minutes to live. Yeah. <clears throat> has to. Has to. Yeah. Um, but as Tom said, the film was a box office bomb, and you know, basically, freaking attributes it yes to Star Wars. He says the title, as Marcus said, was a big problem from the director of The Exorcist. Didn't help it. Um, and the right. fact that the ending was ambiguous. And then <clears throat> he 
you know, he also acknowledges the fact that a lot of the reviews were incredibly negative towards the movie. A lot of personal mm-hmm. attacks on him, you know, from Ooh. his callous and self-involved behavior from the time. He didn't and, make a lot of friends going up the ladder. Yeah, right. Exactly. And so, yeah. It, it is stunning that this was this was cost $22 million and uh, Star Wars cost $11 million. So oh, it was double. twice <laughs> Star Wars. Yeah. That's wow. well. And also, they turned it. Uh, apparently, Freakin had an opportunity to produce Star Wars through Francis, and you mm. know when they started the director's company, like, uh, and he and Peter B. passed on it. So yeah, that looks Jeez. like a losing horse. Good luck with that. <laughs> <one>. <laughs> All right. Wow. And that's the headline, uh, Marcus. Just the, the the totals of the budget. Holy, that's blowing my mind. All right, yeah. wrap it up. Wrap it up. That was one no, fucking hour. It's just, that was my <laughs> budgets. I know. We got a gimmick here. All right, that was uh, one fucking hour on Sorcerer. A lot left on the table there. But, you know, I mean, look, man, that was a look into, um, man, yeah, one of those crazy production stories. Um, but really, truly, yeah, I mean, the movie, it does have, I would say, some, uh, you know, un- unevenness to it, maybe some flaws. But at the end, I will just say, Kind of who cares because the movie is so insane and has some incredible set pieces. It's fucking sorcerer. So, and of course, the movie when it's good, it's really good. Yeah. If we're cheating, I think it's surpassed. Now it's eclipsed Wages of Fear, right? Like it was just a remake of that movie, and now it's the Mm -hmm. one that people think of for that story, right? So, yeah. Yeah, I'd say so. You know, no, totally. Movies don't have a lot of, but it it does have a resurgence. Sorcerer. I know we're cheating, but it's he. Fuck it, you know he died, and we're gonna do this. He, um, it, <laughs> Sorcerer did have a little bit of a resurgence because, uh, you know, when it got remastered and it came back out, and there were screenings and new DCPs and so on and so forth, it did get out there and it was reevaluated critically. And a lot of people, there are a yeah. lot of fans of this fucking movie, and people really do like to get behind it. And I can see why it is kind of, you know, it it, it definitely. Um, I think it's part the story behind it. The movie and, and had no chance of success because of Star Wars and for what it was. But I think you can look back at it with hindsight and say, wow, that's a pretty fucking bold ass, yeah. crazy movie well, with some great stuff. I'm glad pieces. it happened while he was still alive, you know, to, to see that in the last 10 years, you know, the reevaluation. Yeah. Totally. All right. So <clears throat> there we did. Little cheat, but who gives a fuck? That was one fucking hour on Sorcerer. <laughs> um, let's talk about next week, guys, because we're rolling on uh, yeah. to 1978. We're getting to the end here of our 70s run uh, for episode 78. Let's talk about what uh, films are going to be on the Instagram poll. Of course, you can go to our Instagram profile at one fucking hour on Instagram. And if you see this, if you're watching this within the first 24 hours of this episode airing, you'll be able to participate in the voting. And we're going to give you four films that we've picked from 1978. You vote and tell us what you want to see us cover for next week's episode. So let's go through the choices, talk a little bit about them. I know, Tom, this is a big one for you. I know you've talked about wanting to do this one for the show a number of times. It's a big Tom film, I think. And that would be One Fucking Hour on Invasion of the Body Snatchers. Yeah, the uh, it's a it's a remake, actually, to speak of remakes. (laughs) Yeah. And um, no, I mean, uh, I won't get personal about it, but like. uh, but you I can. could if we do if we pick if this film's pick. No, it's just really great. It really holds up. Uh, it was Pauline Kael's film of the year. Wow. Believe it or not, for 1978, it was. Read the uh, read a review. It's I it's, did not it's know good. That. And, and yeah, and I think she gets it. No, it's just uh, it works on many levels. It's a social satire and a snapshot of a time. 
you know, of um, the, the like people self-help movement and bullshit like that. And it's also a pretty damn good horror movie, you know, and it's, it gets kind of gory and uh, and trippy. I think it holds up great. Yeah, yeah. a lot of a lot of a lot of great trippiness yeah. in that movie too, for sure. Yeah. Right? Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. The ending. Sure. Oh, very good. Okay. Very good. More more Sutherland, please. Yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, more Sutherland. That's right. Uh, option number two is our first Paul Schrader directed effort, um, which would be one fucking hour on Blue Collar, um, starring, of course, Harvey Keitel and Richard Pryor, sort of a union crime drama. <laughs> uh, Tom, comedy. any thoughts? Comedy, sure. Any, any, any thoughts on Kodo? Yafet Kodo, oh my God, another big, <laughs> big, huge uh, actor of the 70s as well, too. Um, but in, any thoughts on the film Blue Collar and what the episode might be like? Marcus? No, no. actually, I've never seen it, so I'm looking forward. Oh, I hope shit. it wins because I've never seen it. So. Come on, everybody. Oh. Help little Marcus out to see the movie. <laughs> <laughs> I, little I do like me some Yafet Kodo, though. So yeah, he's I'm a big Yafet Kodo fan. A pick, a pick at the Blue Collar. <laughs> no, it's really great. It's, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's uh, Schrader coming after, you know, uh, Taxi Driver, mm-hmm. writing, you know, being the screenwriter of that one. And, uh, you know, they gave him the keys to direct an entire film. It's pretty wild. There's a uh, the soundtrack, the theme song is by captain beefheart yeah you know? it's it's pretty cool and it really is a comedy as much as anything else but also a very heavy social satire comedy mm-hmm. and uh it's about yeah like uh how the blue collar worker gets shafted eight yep. ways to sunday mm-hmm. and it's these guys trying to fight back and it's a great With snapshot a of like yeah yeah and it's a great snapshot of like 70s low income living yeah you know and like auto and really workers gets under this, yeah. yeah yeah it's yeah. great blue collar it is very great. special still cool. underrated yeah, totally. So that will be option number two. Option number three is uh, one fucking hour on girlfriends, you guys. Nice. Very Anybody? excited about that. Feels like a very modern, ahead of its time movie for many reasons. Obviously, you know, directed by uh, Claudia Weil. It's a female directed movie, but it's just, you know, sadly, you didn't see a lot of movies about women with women characters, you know, and they're sort of true friendships and everyday life and their trials yeah. and their struggles that was a very yeah. rare thing to see in 1978 unfortunately well what's and it's uh the bechdel test is right. applied here mm. right uh right. you know uh if you know you guys can read up on that but it's basically you know a movie where uh, all the female characters maybe talk about things other than like their boyfriends you know that kind of thing and <laughs> yeah. talk about their careers and their, each other and their lives and um no it's great it's very special and um yeah, it, it was unique for its time, and it's still pretty uh, advanced even today. I would say, you know, absolutely very influential um, depiction of yep. half of the population of the world. You know, yeah, not bad. Very, very ahead of its time. Feels mm-hmm. like a movie that would come out in like you know now. Uh, it's very proto in terms of an indie film about that, and it is a mm-hmm. little Sex in the City. You know, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> you know what? That's true. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, you know, female camaraderie is uh, alive. No, I understand. Yeah. Lots of shoes. Shoes. No, like, there's no shoes. Sex and City at its best. Yeah. There you go. Okay. Yeah. There you go. Nice. Um, had to get our, my quota in for one Sex and City. Of course. Yeah. <laughs> it's a new um, and the last option is option number four. It's a documentary. And it's a very important, pivotal documentary uh, made by one of the more famous doc filmmakers there is, man. One fucking hour on Errol Morris's Gates of Heaven. Um, yeah. Man. Uh, Go ahead. 
I love the way this movie looks. I love the way it's shot beautifully. The way that they um, uh, frame up these interesting characters is basically like his uh, look. It's like a, it's a pet cemetery or funeral home. I can't remember, but um, pet cemetery, yeah. pet cemetery. So uh, you get to meet all of this interesting cast of characters who have chosen to to have given their uh, their 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 dogs or their pets like a nice funeral cemetery plot. And you get to, uh, I don't know, just meet a lot of interesting characters. And I, I like that it's focused just on like kind of quirky people. Yeah. And uh, it feels like, I don't know this for a fact, but it feels like the first feature length doc that to just kind of like bear down on some quirky no-name people right. and, uh, and That's true. go along for the ride into, into their world. Yeah, and just it's really great to watch. You know, I never saw it again on VHS. So it's so much fun for me to revisit these movies when they're on film because you get to see like the full frame and the, the film grain right. and uh, you know it just has a, a much more special quality viewing it like a really nice copy of it so yeah. excited yeah to <clears throat> review. No, it, it's special uh and you know we we're talking earlier about how like the first shot of the 80s is in this movie uh, sorcerer 1977 this feels very much like in a good way like uh one of the first 80s films you know uh, in the in that it's about like you were saying, like it's just about people, real people. It's a little quirky, but it's warm. It's not like you know, look at these yeah, freaks, know, uh, like 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 anomalies of like you know our, our failed social system. You know, it's just like I don't know, just people living, and maybe this is the way they live, and that's okay. And it just feels like a totally different attitude, very hip, and small. I think is the term. It's like a it's a film that spoke to smallness of of life and depicting it which became much more uh, big in really the 80s and then maybe even more in the 90s, you know, like uh, almost like indie culture. Definitely more in the 90s, yeah. With yeah, like these than, kind of yeah. like these kind of quirky, eccentric doc characters that we follow. You know, it kind yes, of that's now comes commonplace. ubiquitous. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, like it kind of Kong or something. Yeah, 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 exactly. It kind of comes and stems or it stems from Gates of Heaven in a lot of ways. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, I definitely be excited to talk about it. You know, it's definitely the catalyst for Werner Herzog eating his shoe, which I'm sure we'll get into. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And it and God, you got to love that. St- that amazing set piece of that long-haired rock and roller guy just playing his guitar amp out into the to the hills. Yeah, you know the, the vastness <laughs> of the hills. Pooch. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's amazing. It's incredible stuff. Yeah, Great choices. Cool. So that it's is a good your, year. It is a good year. This is your job, everybody. Uh, vote on one of these four movies. It's going to be one fucking hour on Invasion of the Body Snatchers, Blue Collar, Girlfriends, or Gates of Heaven. One of those choices for 1978. And, of course, we're going to keep rolling through here until October. That's when we're putting a stop to this plan because we're going to transition into, uh, obviously, our uh, one fucking Tober is coming back. So we'll be doing horror flicks all month for October. So I think that gets us up to, like, 1983, I think, is what we're getting up to. Which is um, what we were guesstimating. You know? Yeah. That's great. Yeah, so it's like um, 68 yeah, to 83. This, we, yeah. you know, we do what yeah. we always do. And, uh, yeah. Here horror we go. and more horror. That's yeah. right. So we're going to be doing that for October. So, yeah. So get your votes in. Also head over to Patreon, patreon.com slash one fucking hour. Sign up. It's just five bucks a month and you get instant access to all of our DVD commentaries that we've done. Check out What Women Want. And uh, we're also going to be unveiling the next audio commentary uh, on our next episode. So next week, we'll uh, let you know what we're going to be doing for the next audio commentary. So sign up in the Patreon or scroll down to underneath this video on YouTube. Click the join button to become a member of our YouTube channel. Same difference. You can sign up there for five bucks or on the Patreon. Same perks, same bullshit. 
That's it. Um, thank you, everybody. And I guess we can't leave you. Hold on here. Let's see. We can't leave you without your... Kind of slow. Oh, <laughs> oh, oh. what's she doing here? Oh, no. <laughs> the punching mouth. <laughs> All right, we got oh, this. Sorry, we can't leave you without your moment. There it is. Of Zen. <laughs> All right, everybody, have a great rest of your week, and we'll see yeah. you for 1978. All right. Yeah. Bye, everybody. What would you consider the greatest invention by humans? Well, there's so many inventions, but to me, I think the greatest thing that has come from human beings is faith and love. And I see that in your film. The electric light bulb is no longer a mystery. The television set, everybody can work one now. But the secret, the mystery of love and faith are still unknown and remain mysteries. Well, congratulations to all of you. Motherfucking goddamn orange peel beef. That was wicked, man.